So welcome all of you, uh, students and staff from different schools, and members of the Program Advisory Committee uh, also gathered here today. Uh, secondly, I would like to thank two persons for actually helping to bring together this special event. The first person is Julie, Julie Bilby, the Program Director for Advertising. She has been liaising with Bob via emails and all that over the last couple of months. A second person is Wendy, Wendy Little, who is the communication officer who has been putting up, putting up all the posters and booking the venue and, and arranging the equipment and so on. Without the input of both Julie and Wendy, I don't think we would have an event like this also. So thank you, Julie and uh, Wendy. Obviously, the third reason I'm here is to introduce Bob. So I'm going to just um, do a bit of introduction on Bob. And I came across a very interesting paragraph when I was looking up the RMIT alumni. And Bob was asked this particular question many years ago. What did you want to be when you grew up? And Bob's answer was, I grew up in South Melbourne, and I wanted to be a cartoonist. But I left school at 13, and I'm pleased to see the school has since been closed down. My first job was as a mechanic. I hated it. It wasn't until I went to art school at RMIT that things improved. It changed my life, and I'm grateful forever. So life has changed tremendously for Bob. After graduation, he went to London to work for Young and Rubicam, and then Collard, Dickinson, and Pierce. At that time, Collard, Dickinson, and Pierce was, I guess, the most famous creative agency in London. And then he came back to Australia. He worked in Sydney. He was the founder member of Campaign Palace. So those of you who have heard of Campaign Palace, Bob was the founding member. And then he joined uh, Saatchi, Saatchi and Saatchi in Sydney. And from 1995, Bob was actually the chairman of the Worldwide Creative Board at Saatchi and Saatchi. So during his leadership over the years, Saatchi became so famous that it won more than 7,000 awards. Can you imagine 7,000 creative awards? Significant ones, I, I would mention. And during his leadership also, he repositioned Saatchi and Saatchi from being just an advertising agency. He repositioned it, it as the, the creative company. And Bob went on to actually introduce the worldwide, um, the World Changing Ideas Award. And this has been going, going on for many, many years. And he co-authored the book also on world changing ideas. And Cleo actually acknowledged him by giving him a Lifetime Achievement Award in 2007 for, his, for recognizing his contribution to advertising uh, education and advertising creativity. In 2007, RMIT conferred on Bob the honorary doctorate of uh, the school. So we have a very famous alumni Please welcome Bob Isherwood. I have a friend who's an inventor, and he talks about the, his approach to uh, inventing things is looking for trouble. So he spends his life looking for trouble. I think that's a pretty cool thing, because I believe that uh, problem solving 
is what drives our creativity. Um, and it drives it, it doesn't matter which uh, discipline you're working in. I think whether you're, whether you're a painter, a musician, or a writer, I think problem solving is still driving your creativity. For example, i just show you uh, two artists wrestling with the same problem. This is Vincent van Gogh. He's wrestling with the problem of how to express himself more forcibly. And he solved that problem by uh, the indiscriminate use of colour and uh, not using colour to portray things exactly as we see them. It's another painter, Jackson Pollock, wrestling with exactly the same problem of how to express himself more forcibly. And the way he solved this problem was to get away, get away from the traditional artist's tools. He got away from the palette, the easel, um, and the paintbrush. And in fact, what, so what he did was he put his canvases on the floor so he could walk around them and, as he put it, be actually in the painting. This is uh, the writer's process. Basically, um, each one of these steps here is a set of problems that need to be solved. Um, poets, for example, they deliberately give themselves structural problems. They actually limit the, their, themselves to structures like haiku or sonnets. And they do this in order to drive themselves to greater creativity to more original lines by giving themselves uh, these really strict limitations. Um, that's why I think for advertising people, the brief is so important because that fuels our creativity. Because like the poets, we need constraints. Uh, to push and look beyond the obvious, um, to make us frustrated with a problem so that we are driven to see it from different angles. The brief, I believe, is the thing that steers us to original solutions. Um, I think the worst brief you can possibly have is, you can do anything. It's the worst brief. There's no end to that. You never know when you've reached a point that's actually satisfying because what's the problem that you've set out to solve? So it has no end to it. It's just the worst brief. Patrick Collister, um, who gave a talk at the Creative Academy at Cannes last, uh, two weeks ago, he actually had a great line. He said, give me the freedom of a tight brief. So how tight can a brief be? Well, I think a brief can be one word. In fact, I was taught this by um, uh, Toyota Australia. When I first got to work on the Toyota account, um, uh, we'd, we'd, we'd actually we'd bought their business, in fact. Uh, we'd bought an agency that had the Toyota business. We actually had uh, Volvo. And we'd done a lot of famous work on Volvo, and we got a lot of international awards for it. But we had a lot of trouble with Toyota because they said we didn't understand the brief the way they worked to briefs. We were working to things called single-minded propositions. And that wasn't the way they worked. Um, the way they worked was their first concern was separating the vehicle in the minds of the dealers. 
So they're not interested in the public. They think their first point of reference was the, the, the dealers. How do you separate the, those vehicles out? Um, Volvo to them represented one equity, that was safety. But they had 35 different models that they needed to, to carve out, each one having its own equity. So to do that, they had one word that represented each vehicle. And this was like an amazing thing to me um, because it was just an incredible discipline. They had a list of these one words that they were able to give, give me and it changed my life in advertising forever because um, armed with that, I was able to wrestle to the ground a very, very complicated uh, piece of business. And I was able to judge as a creative director very easily whether a team had actually solved the problem or not. Because, for example, the Toyota Hilux stood for unbreakable. So I would simply say to the team, hey, give me the most amazing idea you can possibly think of for unbreakability. So I could judge it very easily when they'd done that. The client could judge when the agency had done it. And when the ad ran, and there was day after recall, and people call up and say, hey, did you see that Toyota ad last night? Yes, I did. What does it stand for? Unbreakable. Bang. Game, set, match. Thank you very much. So this, for me, was the start of something that uh, we went on to name at Sarge's. We call it One Word Equities. And then we took it. And when I was Worldwide Creative Director, I tried that discipline to implement that discipline right across the world of Toyota. So all the models around the world, um, whilst there were different stages in their development in different countries, they still had the same equity. So Corolla, for example, was reliable. Um, uh, Camry was surprising. Uh, Hilux or Tacoma. Um, in the US was unbreakable and so on. And it was a great discipline and we went on to actually put that through uh, P&G as well because P&G at that time uh, within the agency was a nightmare because it had these equity directors that would write a brief that would be a paragraph long. And it was open to so many interpretations that you couldn't possibly get the brief uh, correct um, without some, you know, oh, we, we haven't answered that part of it or we haven't answered this part of it. But when you start to bring the equity down to one word, um, it becomes very clear whether you've answered the brief or not. This is an example of working to one word equity. Slow down! This is a neighborhood! Um, so th these there were two Sanchi ads. This is another example of a one word equity. We didn't do this, I didn't do this. Um, I wish I had, actually. But, you know, the Navy SEALs have been in the news a lot um, of late for their different exploits. I've read lots of books on the Navy SEALs. They are amazing. I mean, their training course is amazing. And if you had to do an ad for Navy SEALs, it would be kind of hard because there's so much stuff to say about Navy SEALs. But I think if you actually put a one-word equity to Navy SEALs as to what they stand for, I think that one-word equity would probably be stealth. 
They're special agents. They get in, they do a job, and they get out. And they're all unnamed, and you never see them in photographs or whatever. So I think stealth is probably a reasonable one-word equity for them. This is an ad that one of my students uh, brought to me to, um, to show me an example of a good one-word equity. I know you think your truck is totally sick, but this is what I think of your precious 4x4 hang out all day with your stupid friend's truck! Push it! So that's, that's another example that's unbreakable for Tacoma. This is, uh, this, this is stealth. No, it's not. It's Malaysia. <laughs> what do you know? What's going on? Okay, this is Navy SEALs. <laughs> so tell me about no, yourself. Yep. What's going on? <laughs> okay. Um, well, I apologize for that because it's not there. Uh, okay. So there's a problem with one word equities. Probably Navy SEALs will come up in a minute, all right? <laughs> Somewhere else. But there's a problem with one word equities. They are amazingly difficult to do. And that's because this whole thing about problem solving. Um, to reduce a brand down to one word takes some doing. In the case of Toyota, it meant that we usually had to try to get to see the chief engineer in Japan. Very difficult because the chief engineers in, in a company like Toyota are gods. To get a meeting with a chief engineer is a feat in itself. But the chief engineer always knew what the one-word equity would be because they designed the car. They designed it for a particular space in the marketplace and they knew what that equity would be. Um, but we couldn't always get to the chief engineer. So, you know, we couldn't always go through that process. And we'd have to try to work our own way through to a one-word equity. And after a while, it was so difficult, it would become so difficult, that the client would want to give up and, and you would be half-hearted about it as well. But you can see, if you can actually get it, how easy it is to do the work, because the work just flows from that. It's just easy. But to get to that point, it's hard. And so it would usually break down with the client saying, well, you know what, can we have two words instead of one? And you would reluctantly go, yeah, okay. And you go, good, because what we want is silent power. <laughs> and suddenly you've got two words that don't go together and your brief is more than twice as difficult. So one word equities is just one way of solving a problem. It's just one limitation or good discipline to get to. Um, if you're not using one word equities, it still pays to be making one point. For example, if um, this is an idea and I throw it to you, 
else and you were paying attention, you could catch it. But if this is four, if this is four ideas and I throw them all to you, you're not going to get any of them. No, you can keep those. <laughs> Don't throw them back. Um, you're not going to get any of them. So it's good to actually be very single-minded about uh, your approach to what you're trying to communicate. So here's a couple of examples or a few examples of just very simple-minded, uh, single-minded um, ideas. Not one-word equities, but just single-minded ideas. So tell me about yourself. You know, an organized person, I'm somebody who does not need details. I'm actually very, very good with groups. Mm-hmm. I surpass all my goals, my predisposition, my prior job, my competitor. All my personality and me have surpassed their own goals. so much better looking than you? No, it's because my family is so much richer than yours. We just don't trust you, Karen. And there. Knocking down the playground. Why? We're going to build a new power station. What? A power station. They make all sorts of noise and smoke. It's exciting. Can we play there? If you can get over the fence. Sometimes you, you don't get to uh, big ideas by giving the client what they want. This ad I'm going to show you now, it actually started as a half-page newspaper ad. That's what the client asked for. But it wasn't the way to solve the problem. 
And um, this, this ad went on to win uh, major awards everywhere. And it's, it was really fantastic. It was, it, it was, they're, instead of a half-page ad, um, the way they went about solving this was with a cinema commercial. It's for the New, New Zealand uh, Symphony Orchestra. This ad here, this is done by, so when I was uh, created to uh, just the Sydney office of Saatchi's, um, the country was in a recession and uh, a lot of students like you were finishing courses and not being able to get jobs. Sound familiar? Um, so uh, they would knock on our door and, and say, you know, can, uh, can someone take a look at their book and help them along and give them advice and all that until eventually they hopefully they could get in to somewhere. But in the meantime, they were working in Woolworths or um, you know, cafes to try to get by. So what I did uh, at the time was to take some of these students, instead of just kind of working at home and, you know, just in isolation, you come in here and we'll give you real briefs to work on. We can't afford to hire you all, but we'll give you real briefs to work on. And any work that you get through, we'll pay you for. So we had quite a lot of students working with us on that basis. 
And this was done by a girl, young girl team. They were, they were um, one of these uh, students looking for jobs. They actually got so much work through, we were forced to hire them. It was cheaper to hire, hire them than to keep paying them that way. But this ad was actually, again, this started off as a single page ad. And it was to, uh, to bring attention to this uh, flying display by the British uh, Air Force, um, the Red Arrows uh, team. They were going to do a uh, flight over the Sydney Harbour Bridge, I think, on Australia Day. And what the team worked out really brilliantly was that the, du the double page spread, the, the distance for the, uh, for the age or the, um, the um, uh, Sydney Morning Herald, that distance across that spread was exactly the, the, the uh, distance that the, they were, these red arrows flew wingtip to wingtip. Which is amazing. It's just an amazing fact. It's an amazing piece of observation. Of course, we went to the client and said it can't be a, it can't be a, a single page ad. It has to be a double page ad because of this. And he said, you're absolutely right. Um, it went on to win uh, gold line at Cannes, etc. This ad. Um, just a brilliant piece of observation. Um, and and um, very, very cool. And of course, even worse for the client, not only did it have to be a double page spread, so it had to pay twice as much, but it had to be a center spread. But um, it was great. And then the art direction was very tricky. We actually had a senior art director, a guy who'd come from Saatchi's London, who was working with us, who actually cracked the art direction because it didn't look like that when we did it, first of all. The, um, the, the, it, we ran it like a, when we showed the rough to the client, it said, 30 meters above the water, 111 uh, so 11 kilometers per hour, and this far apart was small. And then we realized when we tried to the art direction together, that wasn't the way the ad actually needed to communicate. This far apart was the story. And um, so the art direction was kind of unique in its own right. So I talked about one with equities um, and single minor propositions and all that. These are all just ways of getting, you know, tighter to, uh, to um, limit yourself, to give yourself parameters around which to come to good ideas. Emotional equities is another way. So um, we, uh, we won Pampers. Uh, do you have Pampers in Australia? You have Huggies here, don't you, for babies? We call them diapers. They're nappies, yeah. So Pampers we won a, a worldwide, and that was on uh, the same equity as all other kind of um, nappies or diapers. Uh, it was on a wetness or dryness, sorry, dryness platform. And so we actually changed the equity. We laddered it up to an emotional benefit. And the emotional benefit we moved it up to was helping babies' development. And, and the rationale for that was the more rest a baby gets, the better it is able to cope with learning new skills, et cetera, et cetera, because it's not tired. Um, by moving that equity up, we sent uh, uh, Pampers sales absolutely through the roof to the point where one of their competitors I, was a, actually a friend of my wife's and we had lunch um, with, with him. He was the CEO of Clorox. And he said, what you guys have done with, with Pampers, we're looking at that layering up of equities and we're looking at doing that across our entire product range because it's actually a breakthrough. So this is kind of just the sort of ad that we did 
um, as part of that campaign. No, no! Okay, so that, that moved Pampa's sales up uh, dramatically. That was done in Argentina. It was, um, but we, the campaign was worldwide. We did it in, uh, all over the place to, to the same structure or platform. What I'm going to show you now isn't an ad. Okay, it's not an ad, but it's where my head's at right now. And I'll, I'll tell you why. Oops. In much of the world, it's a disease that no longer threatens the lives of babies and their mothers. But in this part of the world, tetanus claims the life of a child every three minutes. In 57 countries, over 140,000 babies and 30,000 mothers die each year from maternal and neonatal tetanus, despite the fact that a cure exists. These people don't need a miracle. They need a simple vaccine. A vaccine readily available that costs less than one euro per person. A vaccine that can ensure that tetanus will never again take the lives of mothers and their children anywhere in the world. Pampers came to UNICEF to ask, what can we do? Help us figure out what we can do. We knew that over time, that over, over one, two, three years working with Pampers, we could wipe out tetanus. It makes perfect sense. You've got two amazing brands and both do amazing things for mothers and kids. Working with Pampers, we began to focus on an idea that would bring alive the UNICEF partnership. And that idea was simple. For each pack of Pampers purchased, a donation would be made to UNICEF to fund one tetanus vaccine. By simply buying something they already needed, moms could help save the lives of other mothers and babies. To inspire moms everywhere to help out, we created a holistic advertising campaign that ran in 16 countries across Europe. The press picked up the story, and UNICEF celebrity spokespeople got the word out teaming up with UNICEF to help uh, protect mothers and children around the globe. And what I love about this program is that it's so simple and everyone can participate. This tetanus initiative will procure 45 million tetanus vaccines for use in developing countries. Each package of Pampers will cover the cost of one shot. I urge you to go support this. It didn't take long for moms to embrace the idea. Simplicity is key here. You buy a pack of Pampers, you go check out, that's going to buy a vaccine, and that's going to save a life. At the same time, UNICEF field teams were mobilized to immunize pregnant mothers and children around the world.
this is setting a new benchmark for cause marketing for any corporation. They'll want to do programs that aren't just feel-good programs, but that are saving lives and helping save lives. That's why this, the Pampers program is so, is so amazing. This is one of the last things I worked on at Saatchi's uh, before I left. And everything else I've shown you up until this point is old advertising, traditional advertising. It's push messaging that's sent out to, it's a controlled message that's sent out to an audience that you have to interrupt. This is not like that. This is a movement. It's about creating movements and that's something that I'm really interested in. It's why I got out of advertising because I think the old style of advertising that I've been, that I did all my, most of my career, I think it is old. I think movements are where, where we need to be and the ability to use push-pull dialogue which we can do now through technology. So the kind of company I'm, I'm uh, building in the States is about that kind of thing. It's about push-pull. So it's about being able to communicate with your client base and get input and have dialogue as opposed to simply sending out interruptive control messages. Um, there are companies that have actually been doing this for quite a long time. Nike, for example, is a company that's all about movement. Just do it is about a movement. It's about creating an attitude and a movement around that attitude. If I can get back, so for example, Nike Plus is a movement. You put this in your shoes, you're able to compete with the guy next door, the guy around the corner, the guy across another continent. The fuel band, which I think is just about to be launched here, um, is another movement. This thing actually measures all your energy, but you're able to actually uh, measure your energy input and output against your friends and, um, and competitors. And uh, it, it is, again, it's a, it's a movement. Uh, still, shortly after I left um, Saatchi's, I was asked by the um, uh, International Advertising Association, who had a request from um, Ban Ki-moon, the Secretary General of the UN. Um, he asked the advertising industry if um, he could have the industry's help in bringing att attention to the talks in Copenhagen on climate change. And the industry, for the first time, came together. The big networks, WPP, Omnicom, uh, Publicis, Interpublic. It's the first time they ever came together uh, on, on one project. And I was asked to head that as a chairman because I was kind of neutral. I was no longer in Saatchi's. And uh, what we came up with was the concept of um, Copenhagen, uh, where we actually rebranded the city of Copenhagen, called it Copenhagen, and we had to go and get Denmark, get the Danish government to actually agree to do that so that when you actually flew in for those climate change talks, the airport was, was rebranded. Welcome to Copenhagen. And all the street signs, everything was Copenhagen. And Copenhagen was, a, was a, again, a movement. It was a destination. It was a place. Uh, the, and you could go online and you could post messages of hope on, uh, on Copenhagen. 
and for example, and then these messages just kept coming up, um, things like that, from all around the world. And you could post your message, and you know maybe get to see that come from somewhere. So again, it's it's about creating a movement. Unfortunately, um, I thought the campaign was great, but uh, the climate change uh, climate change talks uh, sucked because um, nothing came of it. Um, big ideas, they also come from really big challenges, really, really big problems, need really big ideas or simple ideas. For example, Today, one of the deadliest killers in the world is something no one likes to talk about. A subject that makes people uncomfortable, embarrassed, and even sick. It's not HIV or malaria. It's shit. You literally cannot walk a few steps without a cattering shit. I mean, it's everywhere. Nearly half the world's population is, even today in 2010, without access to toilets. So they defecate in rivers. It's jet black water, inkable black water. Basically, you have a new consumer. In open fields, anywhere they can. As a result, people end up literally eating their own shit. So people are living and sleeping and eating right here, and they're defecating right here. Yeah, how? So how do you begin to solve a problem as big as that? Let me just give you some other parameters around that, this issue. So, in Africa, um, most, a lot of girls can't go to school when they're menstruating because there are no toilet facilities. So it has a huge effect on education. In the favelas, you know, those slums in places like Brazil, that um, they're built around a, a kind of a stream, a small stream that runs through the village, but that, in that small stream people shit in it, piss in it, drink it. None of you would last a minute in that environment. How do you cope with that? How can you possibly change that? Well, I have a friend in Geneva, and um, I got stuck with this problem because my friend actually uh, pitched it to, pitched, uh, the, to the UN, um, myself and a planner, because he thought we could actually do something. So three of us actually um, had a go at solving this problem. Um, and the point of saying that is that you don't need to be a big organization I think, to make change. So the way we came at this, I think, was pretty radical. Because what we said was, okay, so the thing you need to address is poverty. Because if people are poor, they can afford to fix this. Because they don't want to live like this. When we talk to people, they saw this as an assault on human dignity. So the way we approached it was on two levels. One, government ministerial level, people that can actually make big change. And at the grassroots, the people who are living in those conditions. And we had two different things. Um, the first thing we looked at from the economic 
point of view from the country level was how it affected the country's GDP. So we developed the, our campaign around GDP for GDP. And we redefined the second part of GDP as good dignity practice. So GDP, or good dignity practice for GDP. And we went on to show the ministers how by solving this problem, it changes the dynamic of the country and the country's um, income. For example, um, investment in sanitation and hygiene creates jobs. It improves education, like I've just explained in Africa. Girls are able to go to school um, when they have their periods. It, obviously, it increases um, productivity because people aren't getting sick and not turning up for work. It increases tourism um, because people don't want to go and visit places where they're stepping in shit. And obviously, the health improves health and reduces the healthcare costs for the country goes almost without saying. This is pretty cool because we got to present this to uh, the leaders of 12 African states in, uh, in a meeting in Kenya. And there was uh, the leaders from, uh, um, the sanitation leaders from a a country, Madagascar said, this is unbelievable for us because sanitation is always the last item on the agenda in any uh, meeting we go to. No one wants to talk about it. Um, and it's, it's actually in dispute even who's in charge of it. But certainly by the time uh, it gets to sanitation, the, the time for the meeting is nearly over and um, everybody leaves and it rarely gets discussed. But we've just had a military coup in Madagascar and we have a new government. And now we can see we can put this on the front of the agenda. Instead of being at the back of the meeting, we can put it up the front of the meeting because we're obsessed about creating jobs. So we can create jobs this way. We're obsessed about how do we restore the country to, to good productivity. Again, this is how we can do it. So we got to sit down with them, we got to sit down with uh, the minister from Nairobi, and we actually helped them write their, their future sanitation and health plans. It's pretty cool. For the grassroots stuff though, what we're dealing with there was illiteracy. Most of the people can't read or write. So what we did there was to create um, a campaign that actually showed people how to literally turn shit into money. How to create industries out of what one of the uh, people uh, termed um, human gold. It's not waste. You can actually, by uh, using shit, you can create methane gas. If you have methane gas, you can boil, you can boil that, that foul water that's running through the favelas and make it drinkable. So we developed this campaign and we had people that, would, that went around and talked to, the, talked to uh, the villagers about industries that they could start. Um, and we got their input on uh, uh, businesses that, that they could actually start that we hadn't thought of. And we actually, we actually did 
blank posters like this with stickers where they were able to put in their own uh, ideas as to things that they could um, create. So again, the, way, the approach to solving it was literally by taking them out of poverty, by showing them how to turn a problem into money and therefore ease their way out of that um, situation. When I was at Saatchi's, um, I think in, in uh, 97, I think, I wrote this line for the Saatchi uh, annual report, Ideas of the Current and the Future. Um, and I still believe that. I believe that as fervently today as I did back then when I wrote it. Um, my school reports were remarkably consistent when I was a kid. It said, uh, Robert could do well if he paid attention. Uh, Robert's a dreamer. Uh, Robert would do well in this class if he stopped looking out the window. But there's a real irony to that because um, studies at, at UCS have demonstrated that uh, people who engage in daydreaming, uh, so they score significantly higher on creativity uh, than people who don't. So long as they're, they're aware enough to realize in their daydreaming when they have a creative thought. And for me, it turned out that outside that window, there was a real world. And uh, it was a world where people will actually pay you to be a dreamer. Because they know that ideas are the currency of the future. It's the, the currency of the future for their company, the currency of the future for the world's problems, the currency of your future. The thing that's going to cut you out, the people around you, is simply the quality of your ideas. So my advice is open the window because there's a world of problems outside, of, outside that window. And that's a great thing. Problems, I hope I've, I've convinced you are great things. So a load of problems outside that window. Just grab a few and, uh, and dream big. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. That was a very inspiring presentation. Um, it's question time. Uh, anybody wants to begin with a question? If not, I'm going to throw one question at Bob, and I hope he doesn't. I don't put him on the, on the spot. One word for RMIT advertising program, Bob. One word? Yeah. I, ex word. Excel no, excellence. Excellence. I think, um, I think the program you guys have got here, I think, is world class. Okay. Um, you, two students here have just won the DNAD Gold, which is, is, is about as the toughest award in the world. And, and I know that that was heavily competed for. Um, I know Vanderbilt competed for it. I know Miami Ad School competed for it. I know ad schools all over the world competed for it, and you guys took it out. And it's not the first time. It's actually the third time you've won the DNAD Gold for Student Award which I think is incredible. I don't think any other university's done that. Um, I talked to Michael Lynch in Sydney last week and said I thought Campaign Brief should do an article on you guys on that subject. Because I think, I think it's a great course. 
certainly the best in Australia, and I, and I think it's, it's one of the best in the world. Just the product you turn out. Thank you, Bob. Question? Uh, there are microphones around, Julie in front, and then at the back also there's... Okay, please, question. This is your opportunity. Yep, over there. Hi, Bob. Thanks for your talk today. I was just wondering what movements you're working on at the moment, movements to create. Yeah, so I'm working on a mobile phone program uh, to uh, drive compliance and adherence in the healthcare space. Okay. <laughs> That's all Bob wants to say. Okay, for the time being. Any other question, please? Yep, in front. Yep. Yeah, I can hear. <laughs> uh, thanks, Bob. Um, I'm keen to know, I really like your approach to um, simplicity in the brief, the one word type of thing, but unless um, we're working for Saatchi's or we're doing award school, sometimes we don't often uh, get such good briefs. So I was wondering if you had any tips um, for us here when we do come up against difficult briefs in terms of working with account service or, or general approaches that you have when the briefs come about and in terms of find that creative opportunity within them. Yeah, I, I think um, I think you just got to drive it to a place where it's going to it's going to give give good work. And if it doesn't, you need to keep rejecting it. You know, I, I don't know planning. Any of you experienced planning planners? So planning. So let me tell you. So there, used, there was an agency in the in the UK called Bozeman Simi Pollitt, and they were they were a famous agency. Uh, they did great work, and they, they were famous because. Um, they did work that you couldn't believe the client bought, but it was very, very famous. It was great. It was brilliant. And the way they did it was they actually had their own uh, kind of researchers that interrogated the consumer. So they would argue to the client, well, it's, you know, you might, you might like, like your widget, but this is not what the consumer thinks. This is what they think about it, and that's who we've got to win over. And by doing this thing, uh, this sort of system, they were able to sell what seemed like ridiculous work and make it feel very safe and comfortable for the client. And that was, in, that was the birth of what we call planning now. The problem with that was up, up until then, um, creative teams were responsible for the insights. So if you actually had to go and if you, if you needed to get some ideas around a product, you would have to go and interrogate the product and the consumer yourself. So the creative teams were out there doing the legwork up the front of the process. What happened was planning came in the middle and it enabled the creative people to sit back a bit and wait for somebody else to do that legwork. The problem is planners, uh, they're like a hybrid between creative people and account service people. They don't actually often know what's going to create the ad. So. But for creative people, you do. I mean, when, when I worked on Parker Pens, um, we used to have, every time we got a brief to do an ad, we'd go down to the factory. It was a two and a half hour train ride to the factory, so it was no mean thing. But every ad we had, to, we would go down to the factory. But there were things in the factory that would do the ad for you. For example, you'd be walking around, the old guy showing you around, and you'd see a big pile of walnut shells on the ground. You'd go, what are the walnut shells for? And the guy would go, oh, we use those to polish the gold. And you go, why walnut shells? We've never found anything better. 
So there's an ad in that. And if you can't write an ad from that, you know, you shouldn't be sitting here or in the business. Um, but you can't make that up. You simply can't make that up. Um, a team I had working on the uh, uh, Metropolitan Police, they'd been stuck on it for like two weeks, hadn't got anywhere with it. I put him in a police car for a weekend going through King's Cross. They came in on the Monday morning, they had 30 ads. The client said, there's stuff here that I didn't know. So he had tremendous respect for what, what they'd done. And most of those ads ran. But you can't make it up sitting in the office. So, you know, you need to, I think, still try to get out and get insights. Big problem for graphic designers. Because with de desktop publishing, how do you cut yourself out from just Joe Blog? The only way you can do it is to get different information, get different insights. Make sense? Thank you. Other questions, please? Yep. Julie, yep. Just pass it then. Yep, thank you. Um, the GDP for GDP campaign was a fantastic campaign and it had um, tremendous impact. But I was just wondering, what was the actual outcome of the campaign? Like, what kind of changes happened at a government level and a grassroots level? Right. So it, that, we did that uh, probably six months ago. It's in the field. Um, it's, so here's a problem. The UN is a problem, okay? My, my partner actually wanted to, he wanted to do a campaign to stop US funding at the UN because they, it is the world's biggest bureaucracy. And one of the problems with it, being a bureaucracy, it burns money. So a lot of the money that should be out in the field gets burnt by the system. But it's very popular with, uh, with uh, some of the local governments, some of the governments of the countries that we went to, uh, Kenya, um, etc. Um, and they are pushing ahead with it. So it's too soon to tell. But what it needs, it needs gates behind it. I'm a big thing uh, about, uh, I, I actually, I've come to the belief that I, I don't actually believe in non-for-profits. I actually think for profits are where it should be. And there's a, the, the reason why is because for profits uh, can hire the best people. If you, if you make money and you do good, you can hire the best people. The problem with not-for-profits is they have no money, they actually just have to get who they can get and be grateful for it. So it's not the way, I don't think that's the way to solve the world's problems. I think the world's biggest problems need the world's best people. And that's why I think the Gates Foundation is doing an amazing thing, because they're approaching these problems like a company, like a business. Not to make money, but they're approaching it with business models. Other questions? At the back. At the back, yep. Hi, Bob. Hey. Hi. Hello? Hi, I can hear. Yes, um, I worked for Sachi and Sachi China last year, and from what I know that people normally have to work till 10 or 9 o'clock every night to have the work ready for inspection the next day. And I was wondering, um, how's the work here in Australia? 
do people have to work overtime all the time? Or like, it's quite flexible. Well, I don't know about Australia because I don't work in Australia, okay? Um, but I can tell you, my daughter works at Droga 5 in New York. Yes. They serve dinner at 8 o'clock. She, so she's, she, works, she works every weekend and she's, I think often she's getting home at midnight. And, and she can't afford it because we're having to support her. I think so, but I think in Asia, I think, there's, I think you guys have a, a, a kind of really strong... Uh, I, I think probably in lots of businesses, people work um, around the clock in China. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have big problems in China uh, because um, young people. Uh, you know, China was a new was a was a new country uh, for advertising, so we were continually having to train people. But, but the culture was um, uh, people would move for a very small amount of money. So you would train someone and then <clears throat> for just you know, a few pounds they'd actually move down the street. So there's a continual turnover of people. Actually, um, actually, a long time ago I wanted to go into partnership with uh, Miami Ad School and open up in Shanghai. I think, I think they're pretty close to doing that now, but I, I don't think they're going to do it with Sanchi's. But but I think uh, they need something like, like RMIT or um, Miami Ed School there but just to supply the market. Can I ask a question on behalf of some of the students perhaps? How did you actually, after RMIT and South Melbourne, get your first break in advertising in London? Um, well, I started as a graphic designer and I got to a point, I think did it for about three years, and um, I got this brief actually, which no one wanted, um, so I, I wasn't the, most, the best in the design group. I got this brief to do uh, this thing for advertising pig food to pig farmers, and it, it was an ad brief, it wasn't a design brief at all, and, and I had to create ads, had to write ads, had to write the copy. It's the first experience I had with the writing part. And, but oh, I actually suddenly saw this fantastic power of putting words against, against pictures. So they actually had a, an interplay. Um, and it made, it made it really powerful, this sort of dynamic. And, and I, that's what I wanted to do. I thought, wow, this is incredible. I want to do that. And then, so I wanted to get into advertising. So I quit my job took six months off, tore ads out of magazines, redid them at home. And the reason it took six months was because I was kind of learning how to do it. So by the time I got to the back of my portfolio, that ad was so much better than the one at the front. I'd start up with the one at the front again and just keep going. But I was really lucky. I, I went to YNR uh, after all that, and I got hired uh, that day, which was good. But... I don't think you can probably do that, get into advertising like that anymore. I think, I think it's much tougher for you guys. Sorry to say. <laughs> if you want to get into advertising... See, here's the other thing. Um, 
because I teach creative advertising, I have some moral thing about that because the industry is oversupplied. It's oversupplied and it's, it's in free fall. The industry is struggling to work out what the, what the game is in a, in a world where it's not about interruption anymore or intrusion and controlled messages. So in that environment, um, is it morally right to be teaching people like you and pushing them out? I, I think it's okay because I think the accent I try to put on it is creativity. Journalists um, used to ask me a lot where creativity is going. And it's such a bullshit question because <laughs> creativity isn't going anywhere. It's not a thing that goes. It is. The only thing that changes is are the tools that we have in which to express it. And they are fantastic today. I mean, there are things that you can do now, ideas that we couldn't, um, we couldn't actually, we wouldn't dare to imagine. Wouldn't dare to imagine because it would be a waste of time. But you can put these ideas on the screen now. It's just amazing. So the tools that you guys have to deliver ideas and your creativity, it's fantastic. There's no better time to be around. And as long as you focus on that. So I think, you know, where is advertising going and is the television commercial alive or dead or any of that stuff? That's stuff that marketing directors worry about and probably need to. But not creative people, because it doesn't really matter. Because all the tools that you, that you need to do the, the, the work at the beginning of the reel are the same tools you need to do the work at the end of the reel, the movement stuff or any other stuff. So long as you have that, those disciplines, those craft skills, you can just take that and you can apply it to whatever media or technology there is around. And, um, and that's good. You just keep moving with that. So don't worry about where's it all going. Just take, take what's in front of you and work out how to make it interesting. Yep. Do you have a comment on the junction of politics and advertising? On which? On the junction of politics and advertising. Junction of politics and advertising. I thought, um, I thought the Obama campaign, again a movement, um, I thought it, it, it actually, again, is part of the decline of advertising because I didn't see advertising agencies having a major role in an election again after, after Obama did it the way he did it with grassroots movements. Um, I wanted to work for him. In fact, I, I tried very hard to do it and I got close to doing it and then I decided I didn't want to do it. But, but my thought was um, that when he created Brand Obama, what he needed to do next was to create brands around all the, all the things he, he wanted to drive through, like healthcare reform, uh, like alternative energy. These all needed to be brands with movements around them. And they failed to do that. They let the movements fall apart. And they just, so that's, that's why he's had the, the difficulty he's had, because there's not the impetus behind it. There's not brand health reform. Could have been. I think they needed a, a creative director for the White House. <laughs> Other questions? Come. Sorry? What's the worst part about working in advertising? We hear about some of the, things, so. the worst part about working in advertising, Bob? 
the worst part <laughs> the worst part about working in advertising um, uh, training clients because sometimes, you know, because actually you get tired of it after, after a while of hearing the same thing because people are learning. So you, you have a client, you, you actually work with them, they have some success with them, well, everything's great and lovely, and then the client changes and you've got someone else to start again. Procurement is Martin Sorrell's. That's the worst thing he thinks about working in advertising right now. He gave a talk at um, Berlin School of Leadership a little while back, and he talks about where each year on year the clients are saying, okay, so now you've got to do this or more for less. The good clients say, how can we work that out? And the bad clients say, you're doing it. We have a question there. Yep. Um, yeah, which agency has been your favourite to work so far in the world and would you say that travel has helped and inspired you into creating new ideas? Um, all different at different stages in my career. Um, CDP, um, Carl Dickinson Pierce in the 80s, or 70s, 70s and early 80s, was regarded as the most creative agency in the world and I, I was there for 12 years and that was an amazing experience. Um, Campaign Palace, I, that was great. And obviously Saatchi's, I spent most of my life there, so... I mean, they've all been great for different stages of my learning. Yeah. Question there? Oh, you, say, you say it and I'll repeat it. Yeah. Right, selling. So pitching to clients, selling. Really good question. Um, selling your work is something you really need to pay a lot of attention to because you know it's no good having good ideas if nobody buys them. Um, and it, it's, it's really interesting that um, a lot of, I mean, I, I actually teach uh, presentation skills in my course at Vanderbilt because when my students present um, they're usually awful, they're terrible and they do terrible things uh, like they, they actually pitch into a room like this um, and maybe the decision makers here but they're pitching up here they don't eyeball the person that they're actually trying to make the sale to Another thing, they use um, the word I a lot. I did this when I did that. When they're in a team, it's a terrible thing. What are they trying to tell you? Oh, yeah, I'm the, I'm the person that had this idea. It actually makes them smaller and it makes the idea smaller. You always use we. When we did this, when we thought of it, when we approached it, we approached it like this. It makes it sound strong. So there's all kinds of things. The other thing is, putting theatre into your presentation. Um, it's interesting, uh, big agencies, they put a lot of theatre into new business. And new business stuff very rarely ever runs. But they don't put a lot of theatre into the stuff, the day-to-day -day stuff that really does need to run. But I love some of the theatre stuff. Can I tell you one of the theatre things? I'm going to anyway. Um, <laughs> 
there was a small agency in the UK called Alan Brady and Marsh, and they were pitching for British Rail. British Rail didn't know what kind of agency they wanted. They had like 20 agencies um, pitching for their business, a big, big account. It was, it was nationalized railways. Um, when they came into Alan Brady and Marsh, this small startup, really, they came in uh, early in the morning for the presentation, and behind the desk there was a receptionist doing her nails. And they said, oh, we're from British Rail, we're here to see Peter Marsh for the presentation. And she said, oh, he's not in yet. And they said, oh, okay. Um, yeah, she said, I think he must be running late. So said, okay, uh, we'll, we'll just wait. So they sat down, they waited, and after about 10 minutes they went back again and they said, can you check on Peter Marsh? Because he knows we're, this, we're in for this meeting. Oh yeah, I said, but I don't think he's in yet. So she tried, yeah, no, no, he's not here yet. And they went, well, okay, um, can we have a cup of tea or coffee or something while we're waiting? She said, oh yeah, sure, how'd you like it? Anyway, so she went away, she came back with a tray, with a tea, and most of the grey tea was in the saucer, slopped all over the tray, and it was disgusting and undrinkable. And another 10 minutes went by and the client said, okay, we have another meeting to go to, another agency to see, um, can you just tell Peter Marsh that we came and we're sorry we missed him? And they stormed out. At the elevator, a man came up to him and said, good morning gentlemen, my name's Peter Marsh. You just spent one hour on British Rail. <laughs> and we're going to change all that. Pretty cool. They won the business. The ads they did sucked, actually. The age of the train. <laughs> this is terrible. Um, another great pitch. Uh, again, she's putting theatre into it. The girl at the reception was an actress that hired to do it. Um, Hegarty's agency... Um, when they were pitching uh, British Airways, the client came in, they said to the client, if you were to send a six-year-old, your six-year-old child around the world unaccompanied, which airline would you choose? And they all went, British Airways, of course. And they said, right, that's exactly what we did. And they showed a 20-minute film of six-year-old going around the world unaccompanied on British Airways client was in tears. Obviously they won the business. Again, they did ads that sucked. That ad didn't, they, why didn't they run that as an ad? No, they had dolphins coming out of clouds. <laughs> but anyway, put theatre into, into your stuff. Think about how you're going to sell it. Because selling is really, really important. There was a question from somewhere behind? Or? Uh, well, that pretty much answered my question because I was going to ask, um, as advertising students, we see supposedly good ideas on these screens in class all the time and then you go out of the classroom and at the tram stops there's always as, you know, thirsty, have a beer, that kind of thing. And I was going to ask how often are creative compromises made just so that the client will buy it um, because that's also a really sort of sarcastic thing that we right. sit here listening to good ideas but when you're out there sometimes do you have to just give up the good idea so that the client will buy something that's more acceptable and... Yeah. Difference between a good agency and a bad agency, creatively, okay? Um, I know you're not going to like this, Peter, but Y&R, um, we, we, this would be the problem we would have, so the 
account guys would come back from the client meeting and they'd go, great meeting, ah, oh, they loved it, they loved it. And you go, really? Yeah, yeah, they loved it. Um, there's just one thing. And that one thing was always the cornerstone of the ad. You know, we had, we had there were two famous comedians in the UK, Eric Morecambe and, and Ernie Wise, Morecambe and Wise, and we had an ad to do for Tide and washing powder. And we had one of them in the washing machine. It's very funny. And we, but it went all the way through, you know, did a great meeting, all that stuff. One thing, can you take him out of the washing machine? Um, so, so what happened in that environment, you'd spend weeks trying to kind of make something out of what was left after the cornerstone had been taken out. Difference between that and being at CDP was, first off, if, if the account person dared to have that conversation, they'd be told to go out the room and come back in again. And second, if the cornerstone had been removed from the ad, you would tear it up. And you would start again and do another ad. And if that didn't get sold, you would tear it up and you'd do another ad. And you'd keep doing that. And every time you'd just do a great ad until the client had to buy a great ad because you didn't give them anything else. And if after five or six ads, like what happened to us on Ford, the client wasn't buying anything, then you realize you have a client problem, an agency client problem, and then you need to deal with that in the relationship. Do we have any more questions? Yeah. Uh, you mentioned, Bob, about the... Um, the oversupply of advertisers in the industry and also sort of it's hard to find jobs um, going into the industry given the economy. Um, I was just wondering what are some of the common mistakes you see students make who are trying to break into the industry and also what advice you can offer us as aspiring advertisers who are trying to sort of harness a competitive edge? Um, well, I don't see... So I'm not in the industry, right? So I haven't been in it... Um, for since 2008, okay? So I, I don't see student portfolios anymore. Um, I just know it's, I know it's tough, you know? And I guess you've just got to do something that makes you different. So I can tell you, so, does everyone know Droga 5? Anyone heard it? Droga 5? It's a, it's a really, really hot agency. Um, there's a, they have an office in New York. It's like the hottest agency in New York. Um, they have one in Sydney and one in New Zealand. My daughter, when she came out from um, St. Martin's, she, she wanted to work at Droga 5. Was, uh, she was absolutely fixated on it. Problem is, the guy that owns it is my best friend. So how do you deal with that? I mean, how do you deal with her living, you know, in advertising anyway? Um, so what she did, though, um, she spent 10 months, right, she wrote a novel about an Australian writer living in London who was obsessed about uh, Droga 5, beyond all else, and what that did to her life and everybody around her. She wrote as a proper novel, she had it published. And she, she had it published under a pseudonym. 
And then she sent it to Dave Droger. And he read it. And he asked her to come over for an interview under the pseudonym. And then she, she came in and was, you know, you realize it's my daughter. But I think that's going the distance, you know. Because when she was, had that dream, uh, there was a headhunter in the, in the UK that said, um, you know, it's impossible to get into Droga 5. Do you know how many people I see who want to get in there? And she said, yeah, but you don't see anybody with my ambition and determination to do it. And she kind of proved that out. I mean, it's just, you just have to, I think determination is, and you know, perseverance and determination, I think, are the biggest attributes you can possibly have. They're much, much bigger than talent. There's a question in front here. I was going to ask a similar question just now, but you sort of answered. All right. I was going to ask, like, as a fresh graduate, like, what we can do to uh, get a job in advertising? Or what sort of things were you looking in our portfolios? What, what sort of thing are you looking for besides uh, portfolio? I think um, it's a kind of an answer, because I, I, I realize I've probably just said this in a roundabout way. I think one, one of the things you can do is be very focused. I mean, when I, when I um, wanted to get in, I knew exactly who I wanted to work for. I wanted to either work for Young and Rubicum or Dordain Birnbach, and I was focused on that. When I, when I studied advertising, um, I looked at the people that I wanted to work for, and I moved country to do that. Because I, I have this belief, if you want to be the best, it, you know, you, you actually, it really helps to, to actually work with those who already are. So I was very focused on working with the world's best. So I think identifying who you, where you want to be, who you want to work for, and you study their work so that your book reflects the kind of work that they were like. You know who those people are, so you can create a dialogue with them and actually get a, get, start to build a relationship with them so that they can help you and help you in, until the point where they actually probably take you on. So I think focus is, is one way to go. You probably need to be focused on a couple of places in this environment. But... Bob, do you have some names uh, for the students? Who should they be aspiring to work with in the, after they graduate? Well, I mean, I, I would, I don't know, it depends on what you want to do, but I mean, I, I, I would be trying to work for Droga 5 in, in Sydney, definitely. Um, I mean, they, they're actually growing, um, which is unusual in this climate. But they've just picked up, they picked up Woolworths and um, um, Qantas, and my I have a 10-year-old. She's American. She's got an Australian passport, but she's American. But her, they've also got her favorite uh, product, which is Cherry Ripe. <laughs> but, I, I, yeah, I mean, I'll be looking at them. Um, I don't know. You, you've got to look at, the, look at the agencies that are doing the work you like and try to... I mean, do you read the annuals? Do you read, you know, who's winning what and... Should, 
Because you need to do that. You need to look at your you know, award annuals and your DNAD annuals and all the annuals you can get your hands on. Um, and just look at the names. Look who's, seen, who's doing consistently good stuff. Be prepared to move. David Droger um, had an agency in Sydney called uh, Omon. And I'd been trying to get him at Saatchi's for a long time. And then they sold Omon and he was suddenly available. And I offered him two jobs. I offered him um, creative director of um, New Zealand. That's Auckland and Wellington and Christchurch at that time combined. Or regional creative director for Asia based in Singapore, which at the time was fairly scary. Uh, there wasn't a lot of good work coming out of Asia. What he said to me was, I've done the New Zealand job. I've never done anything like the Asian job. That's the one I want to do. And in two years, he took Singapore office uh, to advertising ages, international agency of the year in the US. At that point, I brought him over to run Saatchi's London as a sole creative director there. So, you know, be prepared to move to where the, where the opportunities are is another thing. They mightn't be here. There may be better opportunities for you in another place if that's where the work is coming from. Okay. Yep. Yeah. One last question there at the back. Could you pass the mic there? Yeah, thanks. Hi. Um, I just wanted to ask, how do you replenish your creativity? It's probably a bit of a personal question, but to me it's pretty fundamental. How do you keep new ideas coming? Um, gee. <laughs> uh, I... I um... I don't know. I, I guess just I'm always just interested in problems. I'm always looking at problems and thinking, wow, how would you solve that? Um, yeah, because I, I, I do believe this. I do believe that, you know, these... I mean, when, when we first got Toyota, they were, the, they were the Australia's worst client. They were number three in the marketplace. I couldn't actually, I couldn't hire people to work on it. That's the truth of it. And I realized my career was going to be based on it because it was the biggest account we had. And everyone was saying, we'll wait and see what you do on Toyota. And they had um, a whole list of mandatories. So, because they had a campaign on their wall, they had this thing, oh, what a feeling. And, they, and the client said, you mess with this at your peril. So we had, oh, what a feeling. And we had a jump at the end of the commercial, owner satisfaction. And we had um, a thing they called the clarion call, because, oh, we had a jingle. Oh, what a feeling, people jumping. A campaign Americans had ditched about 20 years earlier. And we had a clarion call up the front, which was da 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 da. And that was based on the idea that if you were actually out in the kitchen, uh, doing something and you heard the clarion call, you'd know a Toyota commercial was on so you could run back in front of the television and see the ad. <laughs> so imagine that, all those limitations. Fantastic. Because what we did, we took each one and we put a creative idea around it. 
So we looked at the end, because that's where we needed to start, because we knew it had to end with something jumping. But we thought, okay, let's have, let's have something like a product benefit jumping. So we, not just a person. Let's get that benefit thing, whatever device or whatever it is, to do the clarion call. And so we did, a, we did a thing, it was the first funny commercial for Toyota, we did this Camry chicken thing with this puppet chicken that has its feathers blown off as it's crossing the road and lays an egg in the road. Prized by the Camry's performance. But the chicken comes, comes at the beginning of the commercial and goes and at the end it jumps and the bald chicken jumping is very funny. It's Australia's first funny car commercial. And it became huge. The client actually ended up selling 35,000 chickens, uh, dolls at Christmas time. But, but again, it's this thing of problem solving. You know, you're just looking at each thing and going, I mean, because when you look at it overall, you go, this is impossible. This is going to be a pile of shit. But when you break it down, you go, I'm going to put an idea behind every single piece of it. It actually it, it becomes interesting. I, um, 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 the light bulb, when the light bulb was invented, there were, there were um, a thousand uh, failed experiments before Edison got to the light bulb. And he was actually interviewed by a journalist about it. And they said, what does it feel like to fail a thousand times? And he said, I didn't fail a thousand times. He said, this was an invention that took a thousand steps. Again, putting a problem solving it. I think that's what keeps you going. We good? Thank okay. you very much. Okay. So Julie is going to say a few words and then uh, close this particular session. Thank you very much. It's been a tremendous honour to finally meet you in the flesh after so many emails. I'm going to miss our email correspondence, but we will keep in touch. Um, I want to obviously thank Bob, but first and foremost I want to thank all of you for coming. Uh, when we were planning this event, um, the only two days that Bob was going to be in Melbourne were right in week one. Um, we know from bitter experience how hard it is to communicate with our students during the semester break. Uh, but we've made it and we've filled the room and we really are very grateful to you all for coming. We hope this has been inspiring, energising and we hope that it's really piqued your um, tenacity because above all else I think you've got the message that to succeed in the advertising industry or any creative industry you need to be really uh, tenacious, determined and really want to do it. Um, and Bob is a great living example of what that tenacity can do um, so thank you all for being here. Um, we hope that you are inspired and we look forward one day in maybe 20, 30 years time to welcoming one of you up to the stage as one of our most famous alumni to come and present to uh, students of the future. Anyway, thank you so much thank you, for Jane. coming. We've got a, a book just oh, to, by thank way you. of saying thank you. Um, and it's been a, a, very great, much. a great honour to meet one of our industry heroes. Thanks. Thanks for coming. Appreciate it.